Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello. You've reached Fox Communications. Hello. Hello, Veronica. This is Jiggy. What's up? Hey there. Can you hold on for just one second while I switch you yeah. the headset? Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Can you hear me? Yeah. Right. So, what state are you calling me from? Uh, McPherson, Kansas, of all Kansas? places. Yes, yeah, Kansas. What? What's the weather like in Kansas today? Rainy. Rainy, huh? <laughs> well, I, I better not tell you what it's like here in the Sierras. Probably really, really, really nice. Well, it's sunny, crisp, and there's snow on the ground. Okay. Uh, we're speaking with Veronica Monet. Did I get the, the last name correct? It's just like Claude Monet, but no relation. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the website is veronicamonet.com. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, let's do it. Um, I'm an author, a sex educator. Um, I, I give people advice over the telephone about their sex life and their relationships. Wow. It's a lot of fun. But before that, I was an escort. And I was an escort for 14 years. How did you get involved in that life? You know, that's a good question because I was uh, an honor student. I graduated in 1982 from Oregon State University with a degree in psychology and a minor in business administration. And I went straight into corporate America and worked for seven years in uh, telecommunications and the computer industry. Uh, my last straight job was as a marketing representative for a radio station. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder you became an escort. There's, there's no pain radio. Oh, you ain't, you ain't kidding. <laughs> so so uh, I met this woman. She was a beautiful woman, and I was um, just getting in touch with the fact that I was bisexual, and I liked dating women as well as men. So I started going out with this woman. She was gorgeous. She really was together. I had her head on straight, healthy, beautiful, married, happy, had kids, but she happened to be a prostitute, and I was shocked. I could not believe it. I I believed everything I, you know, I was a feminist. I still am, but I believed the feminist dogma, which was there was only one kind of sex worker, and that was somebody who was uh, disenfranchised and oppressed. And I met this woman, and she was, like, very empowered and self-confident and happy, and it really blew my mind. So, you know, after about the, uh, six months of dating her and, and, and uh, trying to figure out what was wrong with her, I finally decided that I felt sorry for me more than I felt sorry for her. <laughs> and I asked her to teach me how to do the work. So what exactly, did you just give you a handbook? Or <laughs> how did that now, work? Now, see, now, that's the interesting thing. You'd think a lady with a college diploma who'd been tutoring English on campus and 
working in corporate America for seven years, probably couldn't learn much from a prostitute, right? Yeah. Wrong. She had a lot to teach me. Um, she taught me how to start a small business, um, pay my quarterly taxes, because, you know, even if you're going to do something that's like a misdemeanor in your state, you don't ever, ever want to cheat Uncle Sam. And uh, <laughs> she taught me how to uh, tell the difference between a real genuine client and a police officer uh, when they call up on the phone. And then she taught me how all the different ways to eroticize safer sex, which is actually quite an art to it. Um, you know, what you learn when you're in college or high school and they're trying to teach you how to use a condom, that stuff is really boring and it's yes. all dull that nobody wants to do it. So she taught me how to make it fun and exciting and make money off of it. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned uh, she, she taught you how to uh, determine between uh, an actual customer and an undercover yes. cop calling on the phone. How do you determine that? Well, it really has a lot to do with motivation. Yeah. When a true client calls you up, their motivation is getting off. So... They're not so interested in what your street address is, how long you've been <laughs> in business, and what they're going to get for their money. A lot yeah. of times, they're more interested in trying to push the conversation towards a sexual connection before they even get to your door. Wow. Um, whereas a police officer will have kind of a, a an order of business. It'll be first establish where you're located, then establish how long you've been there, or something some identifying factors about you, and then try to further an act of sex. But they don't usually try to further the sexual content until they get there. Yeah. So they kind of they kind of come across very cold, distant, uh, business-like, and way too interested in your life as opposed to how you're going to get them off. <laughs> That's interesting. So they so they basically they have a checklist when they call and. Unfortunately, yeah, and you know what, they've, they've had such a difficult time getting uh, prostitutes to fall for their line of BS that uh, they've started getting um, people who are incarcerated to do their work for them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> hey, and so can you imagine this? If you, were, if you were sitting in jail and they offered you a deal and said, hey, if you help us entrap this prostitute, we'll knock a few days off your sentence or we'll reduce your fine. And you're like, oh, let's see, free sex and I get out of jail quicker. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> sure, I'll take the Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. I would, <laughs> I would jump at that chance. So uh, we're, we're speaking with Veronica Monet of veronicamonet.com. You went from being a uh, an escort to what? A sex educator How did and an author. I have a brand new book out. It's called Six Secrets of Escort. Wow. How did you go from being an escort to a, a sex educator? I actually, you know... I would really value the uh, 14 years of hands-on experience with uh, uh, 1,869 clients. <laughs> hey, that, that, that's, a, that's a pretty good number. That's a pretty good number. Did you plan right that? Uh, no, actually Aww. I didn't. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> Faith, I guess. <laughs> but I, um, I went ahead and I, uh, I went 
uh, through a process of getting certified as a sex, edu sex educator through San Francisco Sex Information. And uh, it was a 60-hour workshop. Most medical doctors get about 12 hours of sex education. And that's, that's when they're getting a PhD in supposedly the human body, but they get about 12 hours. I have 60 hours of formal education, as well as 14 years of hands-on experience. Wow. So uh, what, was, what was getting certified like? Actually, it was a heck of a lot of fun. Um, we had something, I, I can't uh, say it over the radio, but um, it was uh, Epilama. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is grad this graduation, right? Yeah. You sit in a room full with the rest of the students, and um, they dim the lights, and they turn the entire wall, one side of the wall of the building, the whole wall of the building, into a projection screen. And they start playing about 10 or 12 different X-rated movies simultaneously. Wow. So, and it starts off, you're thinking, wow, this is going to be so hot. Because they start off with more mainstream pornography. Yeah. But they work their way up to things which are fetish and, you know, kind of very specialized taste, if you will. Yes. So, so by the time you go home that night, it's almost hard to keep your dinner down. <laughs> <laughs> and that was graduation. It was like, okay, I, I figured out what I like and what I don't like. But also the whole idea was basically to open our minds up so that we would not be judgmental about the things that we didn't particularly like personally. Yeah. So I have a very, very non-judgmental, non-shaming approach to sex. And uh, it doesn't matter whether it's something I particularly care for. I have an understanding of what it means to various different people. So, so that's, that's what it was like getting wow. certified. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It took us out of our comfort zone. Yes. Seems, seems to be uh, the case. <laughs> How long yes. did that go on for? You know, probably an hour. <laughs> <laughs> so, what, what was was that it, or, or did they have uh, did you have any oh, like book work or anything you had to go? No, no, no. We, we studied anatomy and we studied physiological and psychological response. And, um, we studied everything, you know, from BDSM to um, sex after menopause, um, sex during pregnancy. Um, you know, fisting. I don't know how many. Oh, wow. <laughs> you, you got into everything. Absolutely everything that's humanly possible. Good Lord. Yeah. Well, hey, as, 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 as long as they made sure all their bases were covered. Well, it's important if you, I mean, for San Francisco sex information, they're taking phone calls from uh, people from around the United States. So. Yeah. You know, you can't just say, oh, I'm sorry, we don't have information about that. <laughs> you need to know something about everything Yeah. if you're going to help people. The website is uh, veronicamonet.com. You mentioned earlier you've got a uh, book coming out. Tell us a little bit about that. The book is already in all bookstores, and it's also on Amazon.com. And it's called Veronica Monet's Sex Secrets of Escorts, Tips from a Pro. 
And this book is really targeting uh, women, and in particular, it's targeting uh, conservative married women. <laughs> so my, my radical friends from San Francisco don't have much use for the book because it's just not perverted enough for them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but it seems to be very, very popular with uh, mainstream society. And that was the whole purpose. I, w I wanted to put something out there that um, shared some of the things that escorts do, which cause men to want to come to see them and pay for sex, and uh, at the same time uh, talk about things that were easily incorporated into your own marriage or long-term relationship. And um, it's, it's very heterosexual, um, you know, and I'm not, but the book is heterosexual. <laughs> <laughs> So it, it would be a book that uh, a married, uh, church-going woman from the Bible Belt would be very, very comfortable getting a copy of. <laughs> so how long did it take you to, uh, to write the book? Actually, I wrote it in four months. Wow. Yes. <laughs> That's what I said. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> Most people, when they write books, they're writing them for at least six months to a year. So. Uh, so, you know, I asked my agent about that because this was my first book. Uh, first published book, and I've written yeah. I've written some other books that haven't been published yet. But and most of those, I mean, they come when they come, and the, and you write them when you, you the spirit moves you, you know. Yeah. I was under contract and I was under deadline, and so I treated it just like a regular desk job. I was you know up at the crack of dawn and worked until basically you know kind of from eight to five kind of a job. So what all and, uh, went into putting the book together? Um. I, you know, I did research, but a lot of it is drawing from my own personal experiences. Yeah. So, hmm. um, and then, of course, I do a lot of my own editing. So, of course, I, I, I'm sure my editors would say, really? Because <laughs> 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 they came along and edited some more, but, but I had to crank out 85,000 words. So, that was, that was, that was quite an assignment. Yeah. Wow. How has, uh, so far, the book been received? Actually, I had a really nice write-up about it in the Seattle um, paper called yeah. the PI, the Intelligencer. And then uh, San Francisco Chronicle did a really nice review of it. And uh, it hits the, I don't know if you are familiar with the Amazon rankings, but um, it, it goes from like one to a million. Yeah. <laughs> and... Um, I've uh, I've gotten up to like I think 504 or 541. Wow. Uh, which which wasn't bad. No, uh, it's not bad at all. Still trailing behind um, Kim Cattrall's sexual intelligence. You know, she's from uh, Sex and the City. Yes. Yeah, but she's a little more famous than I am. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I was getting I was I was closing on her there for a while. Well, she's got a TV <laughs> show too. If you had a TV show, maybe, yeah. Um, did I, I, actually, I had a TV show years ago before. Really? Oh, it was on Community Access. Nobody saw it. Well, it was a heck of a lot of fun. I was the associate producer of it. What was, uh, what all went into that? The topic of that show was, it was called Survival Skills. Yeah. And we talked about um, some really boring topics, like uh, <laughs> latchkey children. No offense, but I thought these were boring topics. Yeah. Apparently, the public did, too. Uh, gridlock, uh, earthquake preparedness, and career transition. <laughs> 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 so 
Now, one day, uh, this is before I became an escort, uh, but just shortly before I became an escort, I started dating a male stripper right around the time I was dating this female escort. And I decided to go into the club and, and do a uh, remote filming of his um, uh, dance troupe. Yeah. And then I brought him and one of the other strippers into the studio for an interview. And that was the one and only time in four years of hosting this show that we actually, people calling in. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I realized at that point, wow, that sells. <laughs> that way I was a little slow on the uptake on that. But, um, yeah, so I started thinking, wow, this stuff is really fascinating. <laughs> So, so you you've dated an escort, you've dated an, a male stripper. I have. <laughs> Any other unusual acquaintances? Well, I got, yeah, I got married after being after being an escort for two years. I got married to a man, and wow. we were married for twelve years, while, all throughout my um, escorting career. Wow! And, uh, and we, uh, my husband and I, uh, were. We had sex on the Playboy channel. <laughs> well, there you go. Not everybody can, can say that. No, used to people who look like they're having sex on the Playboy channel are faking it, but we did it for real. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, we've, we've actually uh, produced and appeared in a, a few adult films. So. Well, how did the uh, Playboy channel thing come about? That was the strangest thing. I was watching an interview of Ronald Reagan's daughter, and she had just posed for Playboy magazine. Yeah. And I thought, wow, maybe I'll do Playboy someday. And the phone rang, and I went and I picked it up, and it said, hello, it was just Veronica Monet. And I said, yes, this is Veronica Monet. And he said, this is Playboy Enterprises. And <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's freaky. <laughs> and I was like, how did you guys find me? <laughs> They're like, well, we, we saw an article that you wrote in Gauntlet Magazine. I'm going, I didn't know anybody had even heard of Gauntlet Magazine. So I kind of I kind of believe in um, in karma and fate and synchronicity, you know? <laughs> well, that, kinda, is, that, is, that is quite an interesting uh, background. That was, yeah, that was kind of strange. I was, I could not believe it. Same thing happened with Belmar's Politically Incorrect. Yes. One day I was sitting there watching it. I was a big, big fan of the Politically Incorrect show, and I was watching it with my husband, and I said, I'm going to be on that show someday. And he goes, you think so, huh? And I go, yeah, I just have a feeling I'm going to be on that show someday. And um, he called me and booked me about six, eight months later. <laughs> wow. And I, at that time, I had no agent. I didn't, you know, I never approached them. It was it was just magical. Yeah. How, was that, how think, was that experience? Was it... Oh, my God, that was so much fun. That was so much fun. Uh, we, My husband and I were vacationing in Hawaii on a scuba diving trip, and then um, uh, Bill Maher and uh, Scott Carter, he's the executive producer of yeah. the show. He still works with Bill on the new show on HBO. They flew us from Hawaii to Las Vegas, where they were filming. Wow. Um, that's why they wanted to do a show on prostitution, because they were in the only state in the union where prostitution is legal. Yes. So they flew me in, and um, uh, my husband and I both, and I did the show with uh, Charo and Howie Mandel oh, and, and John Schneider. <laughs> and 
And do you know who Michael Buffer is? You know yes, the, uh, the boxing announcer. He introduced our show. <laughs> and oh, my God. <laughs> and it was so much fun. Howie Mandel said, oh, he said, you're a hooker? And I said, well, I actually prefer to be called a whore. <laughs> and then he said, well, I'll call you a slut. <laughs> And I said, no, 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 slots do it for free. I exactly. Get <laughs> there it is. Yes. And uh, so everybody on the panel was for uh, decriminalizing prostitution, except for John Schneider. No uh, and he had it against it because his wife was arguing against prostitution in the green room with my husband. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, that was... Um, that was interesting. I had a crush on John Snyder when I was 15. I used to watch him on the Dukes of Hazzard. <laughs> and it was so weird to be on stage with him because here he was, my opponent, and I'm trying to get, you know, like sharpen my claws and be ready to take him on as my yes. adversary. But every time we went to commercial, he'd get out of his chair, come over next to me, and flirt with me. Just so I would be completely unnerved. <laughs> By the time we got back on, the air, on camera... I was just like, la, la, la. That's great. And he would, and he would public. I mean, he did some of the most humiliating, degrading things on TV. Of course. <laughs> when the little red light's on, he's uh, um, going after you. He was good. He was a pro. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, usually when you meet people in person, sometimes you're like, well, they're not as tall as I thought they were or whatever. He's, like, taller and better looking in person than he ever will be on camera. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The website, by the way, is veronicamonet.com. You've got a uh, links section. section. There you go. I need to learn to speak proper English. I'm on the radio, for God's sakes. Um, How did you come about some of those? uh, Is it just from research? or? Oh, if you go to my links. Uh, the links on my website? Yeah. Oh, no, no. Those are, um, if, if you go, it depends on which sections you go to. Like, one is all the people that I've worked with as photographers. And actually, it's just the people who have websites. I've worked with some great photographers like George Lang from People Magazine, but I haven't been able to find wow. a website for him, so I don't have a link for him. But Kim Strengfellow, um, she used to be the photographer for Mansion Pumpkins, um, and she's um, pretty pretty accomplished at this point in her career. She's on there. Uh, David Steinberg, he's done a lot of my photography, is also on the website. If you go over to the, the section for um, sex worker organizations, yep. I have a lot of, of different sex worker rights organizations on there, like Zaiting from um, Hong Kong. And no, I, I know a lot of these people personally because they go to the international conferences on prostitution. Wow. And I, I did not them. know there was even such a thing. We had, we had one, uh, Norma Jean Almodovar put one on in 1997 down um, in um, um, Southern California yeah. at um, um, Cal State Northridge. And, um, and then I just recently went up to one in Montreal uh, put on by Stella, which is a sex worker rights organization out of Montreal. Wow. It's, it's always very inspiring because you have all the, the, the uh, sex workers from around the world like the women from India, they're so inspiring because they're working such a grassroots movement and it's so much tied to their very survival. Yeah. Um, and, and they're so brave. And, and they're so militant. 
<laughs> they, they put us U.S. U.S. activists to shame, in my opinion. And then, and then I get really inspired when I get to talk to the people from New Zealand because the people from New Zealand have actually um, are the first on the planet to get decriminalization, and um, their working conditions are so much better, and, and the safety for the workers is so much improved. Um, and you know, they're just working on more advanced topics now, like zoning and taxation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but uh, here in America, we're we're still trying to. Uh, you know, make it against the law to kill prostitutes. Because although technically, sure, it's against the law, it isn't really in practice because prostitutes don't really have the right to go and uh, report serial rapists and serial killers. You know, really? if they do, they risk the run of getting arrested as prostitutes. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and I have other links on there for the people who don't want to get involved in politics. I've got links on there for... Um, and that is just mostly research, although I do know quite a few of those people, too, like Nina Hartley and Debbie Sundahl, um, women who produce um, pornography, uh, X-rated videos that are for women. <laughs> 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 Sexy and respectful. <laughs> wow. That's something you don't ever... <laughs> I know! You don't ever see, hardly. Well, actually, there's, there's uh, Debbie Sundahl and Nia Hartley and Candida Royale or like, uh, and Annie Sprinkle. Those are like four of the, uh, or the big names. Um, yeah, Nina's been around for ages. Yes, yes. And she's done a lot of mainstream <laughs> porn, but she's also produced her own educational videos, which are really sexy and informative at the same time. And then Candida Royale does videos which are um, teaching, I mean, they're not teaching women, actually. They're just uh, entertaining. And they're very romantic, so you get like the romantic movie, and, and then it eventually moves into full-blown sex. <laughs> That's both <laughs> worlds, I guess. Yes, uh, well, <laughs> you know, women love to be made love to. <laughs> that is such that is such a uh, unusual unusual thing to hear. <laughs> 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 I was noticing on your website you've got a. Uh, list of 10 things women should never do for free. Oh, yes, I've gotten so much black <laughs> from the men on that one. <laughs> well, see, a lot of these I agree with, and I don't know why more women don't. They just, oh, well, you're in a... They just go ahead and just, well, whatever, you know. Yeah, I... Kind of like the whole... Kind of like, I never understood the whole concept of uh, the whole beads... Thing. I <laughs> women turning their breasts with little cheap plastic beads. You've got a very good point there. I obviously <laughs> just anxious to show their breasts, um, which I have nothing against. But just, I, I want women to get clear on what actually does work for them, yeah. and you know, and have some healthy boundaries. It's like don't don't agree to do things just because you're into people pleasing. You know, it's like it's okay to say no. I still yeah. know so much as an escort. People, it always shocks them. They're like, but you're an escort. You can't say no. And it's like, oh, my God, I said no all day long. <laughs> I have healthier boundaries than most of the wives and girlfriends of my clients. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, kind of things have, what kind of things have you said no to? Oh, geez, the list is so long, it'd be easier <laughs> to tell you what I said yes to. <laughs> Let's just put it this way. One of the things that I never allowed my clients to do was to orchestrate our time together. 
So if, if somebody came They're walking around, well, like if they, they came in and said, no, if they had a script and they were like, oh, this is my fantasy and I would love it if you would enact this script, I would read the script and I'd let them know whether or not I was on board for the fantasy. And if it was something I didn't find objectionable or offensive or just a turnoff, yeah. then, then I would go ahead and make that fantasy come true. So, you know, I was, um, I was definitely out to please and, and to have return business. But I would not allow anybody to talk to me or interact with me in a way that was the least bit patronizing or degrading. Yeah. So that's like something, you know, where somebody, oh, oh, come on, honey, please. Come on, just do it. That kind of whining and begging, manipulating stuff. It'd just be out the door. <laughs> I don't even care if it was something I was going to do. I just didn't want to be talked to that way. <laughs> now, it's okay. You could take that negative energy somewhere else. Exactly. Yeah, so I, I was really, because of those boundaries, I, I described my client base so that it became... And it did start off that way. It became, as I, as I come to know myself better and know the terrain of this particular profession better, I acquired a really elite group of clients that just made it a total joy to go to work. Well, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> that's really cool. <laughs> so I figure that if I could do that and pull a comfortable income, and demand a really stupendous price for my time, that it should be totally possible to do that in the context of a relationship with one partner. Don't yeah. you think? Yeah. So I, anyway, I think that's transferable information to say to women, even when I was making a job out of my relationships with men, I had great boundaries, and I was concerned about getting enough men to pay the bills, right? <laughs> so... Um, I would certainly think that if you're just picking one man to marry or one man to be your boyfriend, you shouldn't have to put up with anything you don't want to put up with. Yeah. <laughs> it, it sounds like it would work, but I don't know, putting the theory into, into practice. <laughs> well, you know, there's all these ameliorating factors. When we're in love or we care about somebody, the Sometimes it's difficult to assert those boundaries. I actually think it was easier for me to assert boundaries with my clients than it was with my own husband. And I've I actually had some excellent boundaries with my own husband. But, you know, there are times when um, you're trying to look for that compromise that's going to work for both of you. Yeah. It's, it's, not, it's not a black and white thing. But certainly I would love for women to, especially, you know, I think my biggest concern is for young girls we're dating. Oh, uh, yeah. Are, they're like watching this Girls Gone Wild stuff, and they're thinking that the way that, you know, that they're going to be popular and yeah, attract in is to engage in behavior that may or may not actually even be part of their own sexual terrain. I mean, it's like, you know, a certain portion of the population is bisexual. I'm bisexual. Yeah. But a certain portion of the population is not bisexual. Yeah. <laughs> and, and if all you're doing is putting on a girl-girl show to turn somebody else on, that's such a abandonment of your own sexual truth. And I, I find that worrisome. I find the, the oral sex rates in our grade schools worrisome yeah. because 
you know, a lot of it is about girls giving blowjobs to guys. But it's and never the other way around. Well, I've, I've read some conflicting data about that. Um, I think Kaiser Permanente just came out with a survey, and they were trying to say there was actually quite a bit of uh, oral sex being given to girls. Yeah. But I, you know, what I know about the culture, it's, it's usually a lot more convenient to give a guy head than it is to... Oh, yeah. <laughs> so if you're just looking for something quick that you can do in the bathroom or in the car, it's usually going to be that the guy gets service. And I do think you should get paid if you're going to act like you're working a job. <laughs> Otherwise, show up for your sexuality. You know, it should be a mutual give and take thing here. Yeah, it shouldn't be a shouldn't be a one way. Yeah, I shouldn't be a how can I how can I please this guy so he won't leave me thing. Yeah. Makes me very sad when women approach their relationships thinking that they have to do sexual tricks for the guy to keep him, because prostitutes prostitutes don't even do sexual tricks to keep their clients. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, hey, you know what? There's more where you came from. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like uh, fast food restaurants. You know, they treat they treat three or four people like crap. Well, big deal. They lose those people. There's ten more people waiting to. And through the door. Yeah, yeah, and I, I certainly didn't want to treat my clients like crap. I, I, I tried to bring a lot of integrity and, and actually a lot of spirituality to my work. Yeah. But I sure as heck wasn't going to let them treat me like crap. Um, and, and, you know, part of, part of really being a good um, sexual partner, whether you're doing it for free or you're doing it for pay, is to make sure that whatever you're doing is something that you also find enjoyable on some level, because if you don't, you're not really showing up for it. Yeah. And then and then the person's getting ripped off on another level, you know? They're getting something that's mechanical. So oh, yeah. And I noticed uh, one of the other things on the, the ten things women should never do, date married men. Why do women do that? I, you know, I think, I think there's a lot of things going on there, and it depends on the woman, obviously. Some women are just, you know, they've, really don't want to commit to intimacy, they're afraid of intimacy, so a married man becomes very safe, yeah. uh, because there's no, there's no chance of commitment there. Um, the other thing is, like, it's competition. I want to prove that I'm better than her, or that I can pull you away from her. Um, and then I think, um, you know, some other observations are that men who are married are more desirable because they've already shown themselves to be good providers and good fathers. That too. And a lot of times women, this even happens in nature, that uh, females of the species will pick the marriageable kind to actually raise their offspring, but they'll go have sex with the bachelors who don't make good partners um, to get pregnant. Yeah. (laughs) And that that happens in nature. There's like some birds that do that. But... um, so, I mean, you know, how much of it's cultural, how much of it's um, just our predisposition, I don't know. But I, I think as human beings that we can aspire to things that create a higher level of consciousness for us. And, yeah. And I've, I've had lots of friends who dated and even got pregnant by married men, and, and it was very sad for them, you know. I mean, one girl in particular that I remember, you know, had to face the pregnancy alone. Not like he was wow. going to go to classes with her, and it's not like he was going to go to the hospital with her. Yeah. 
So having seen that pain firsthand, um, I don't, not like I have a moral judgment about it. I just don't see where the advantage is to the woman. And I, I really would like women to think about their own needs because mostly women are taught to be nurturing caretakers. Yeah. And they're not taught to think about, well, you know, really, does this serve my purposes? Is this the best choice for me? So, and I, no, I think, I think if you're dating a married man as an escort, it's, um, it's a great client. Why not? Yeah. Um, and actually, it may be a very good thing, very, very good choice for him if he is going to go outside of the marriage to have sex. It's better that he do it with an escort than with somebody else because there's no chance of emotional entanglement. And so that tends to preserve the marriage if, if that's something that he wants to, to do there, if he's trying to stay married. Yeah. But, um, yeah, if you're dating a married man um, because you want romance and, um, and some kind of emotional involvement, you're certainly going to get kind of a watered-down version of it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's, there's like all kinds of people who, um, you know, maybe would be better off if they could just ascribe to the polyamorous view of life. Yeah. polyamorous view of life, you could have multiple partners, um, but they would all know about each other. And then and nobody has to feel lied to or ripped off or manipulated. And when I was married, we had an open marriage, so we could have sex outside of the marriage. How did that work? It worked great. Uh, and, oh, you know, mostly what it meant was that we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the strangest thing. When you have permission to do something, you lose interest in it. <laughs> and, you know, that's not to say that we had lost complete interest in it. We did occasionally do it, and sometimes we did it together, and it was a lot of fun. But um, mostly we were just like this really monogamous, conservative couple that stayed home on weekends and rented blockbuster movies and took our dogs for walks in the neighborhood, you know? <laughs> It wasn't this big sex party that a lot of people probably would have imagined. Wow. But, uh, you know, in the beginning it had a lot of novelty to it, and I would, uh, like, I'd surprise him with a few hundred dollar bills and uh, Father's Day cards and say, you know, Happy Father's Day, honey. Um, and I would be giving that, him that money so he could go see a prostitute. And... Um, <laughs> He'd get all excited, and he goes, Oh, it's so much fun being married to you. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I would say probably about seven years into the marriage, um, I was trying, I was like, oh, oh, come on, I think you'll have fun. Go, go, go. And he's like, no. He says, I want to take money and take you out. And I go, but you could go out with me anytime. And he goes, well, that's where I'd rather be. And then wow. wait. So that's what I'm saying. Nope. Married couples out there, they should give each other permission. You'd be surprised um, how much more faithful your spouse would probably wind up being. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Well, I uh, appreciate the interview. The website is veronicamonet.com. Okay, we are back here in the Jiggy Jig while you show. Speaking with Greg, I don't want to butcher that last name. I'm going to let you say it. <laughs> it's Kalikas. Kalikas. Oh, well, that's not as bad. No, it's not as bad as it looks. <laughs> you are the host of Pro Karate Weekly, correct? Correct. 
We uh, we go out every the, Wednesday night. Also, the promoter of uh, Little Event. I wouldn't say Little by some <laughs> of the guys you've got on it this weekend. Uh, or is it next weekend? It's uh, June 10th, actually. Oh, June it's, 10th. Okay. Yeah, it's a couple weeks away. And, um, yeah, it's going to be a great event here in, in Cleveland, Ohio, the Scene Pavilion. Um, in the Flats District, which uh, I'm sure pretty much everybody's familiar with. Oh, yeah. Should be uh, a loaded fight card. Um, you know, we're very excited about it. Uh, give us a little rundown on it. Just Yeah, we've got a, uh, it's, a, it's a Gladiators Fighting Series event, um, which is, uh, you know, a great organization here uh, throughout the country. They do events in uh, Milwaukee and Illinois. Um, Ohio, of course, uh, and, and we've expanded into Canada. Um, and this one, June 10th, Fight Night in the Flats 2, is going to be our biggest event to date um, in the 10 years that, that we've been uh, doing Gladiators events. Uh, 16 wow. fights total. We're going to have 10 pro bouts uh, with some very familiar names to, uh, to mixed martial arts fans. Dan the Bull Bobish, uh, who is a UFC veteran, has fought uh, overseas for pride, is the former King of the Cage super heavyweight champion, um, this guy only weighs about 300 pounds of solid muscle, and um, needless to say, he's uh, fighting for our super heavyweight title against another 300-pounder, Eric Knox, who uh, trains with uh, Team Hammerhouse, Mark Coleman, and those guys in Columbus. That's one of our featured matchups, but we have three other title fights that night, um, including Jason Steeltown Taylor out of Pittsburgh. Wow. Currently undefeated. He's uh, one of the best lightweights in the sport, period. Um, along with Ryan the Lion Madigan, he's... Uh, well-known in the kickboxing circles, currently fights uh, for Chuck Norris in the World Combat League. He's decided to make the crossover and, and uh, compete in mixed martial arts, and he's making his debut in the cage on June 10th. Wow. I, I'll tell you, that that bull bobish guy. Wow. <laughs> I've seen that guy fight a few times. He is somebody you do not want to be scrolling with. Yeah, he's uh, he, he's a fierce competitor, and um, you know he was a two-time All-American wrestler in college. And, um, you know, you, you really couldn't find a better fit for, uh, for his personality. And, uh, obviously, his look is, is perfect for the sport. We're just, you know, thrilled to have him on the card. And, um, you know, like you said, anybody that's seen this guy fight, um, you know, knows that it, it's definitely worth the price of admission just yeah. to check this guy out in action. How did you guys secure his services for this thing? Well, luckily, um, Dan uh, lives and trains in Cleveland, Ohio. Oh, really? So, yeah, we've been fortunate enough to have uh, some ties to him throughout the past few years. Of course, he's been on PKW to promote events. And, uh, you know, with this being right in his backyard, it was, it was kind of uh, mutually beneficial. Of course, he gets to fight in front of his hometown fans for a title. And, um, you know, we get a world-class caliber fighter on our card. And, uh, of course, everybody wins, the promoters, the fans, and, uh, and Dan. So, like I said, we're, we're pumped about it, and uh, I can't wait for June 10th to get here. Is this gonna? Is this event just gonna be exclusive? You got to be there to see it, or are you guys gonna do some type of DVD or online? Oh yeah, it'll it'll definitely come out on DVD. Um, we've got a production team, uh, a great production team, and all of our events are released on DVD. So that'll be available. Uh, I'm guessing probably towards uh, September, October of this year. That's um, we are also working right now to try to get uh, a deal done with the Sports Talk Network. Um, and possibly webcast the fight for the fans that, that might not be able to make the trip into Cleveland. Nice. Um, yeah, we don't know if that's going to get done in time for June 10th, but definitely by uh, our October and December shows we'll have that uh, available for the fans. Wow. You guys, you've been promoting this event for 10 years, you said? 
Well, this is our second show in Cleveland, but uh, the Gladiators Fighting Series, Duke Rufus, uh, former oh, okay. boxing world champion. Uh, yeah, he founded this series ten years ago. It started, <coughs> excuse me, in Milwaukee. Um, you know, at that time it was all kickboxing and uh, you know higher level kickboxing, a lot of K1 fighters and whatnot. Um, and over the years, it's kind of evolved into uh, you know in, into both. Really, we do kickboxing um, as well as mixed martial arts now. And of course, with MMA being uh, as big as it is nationally, yeah. and you know <laughs> television exposure, it's worked out well for us. So. Um with this, how many events do you promote a year? Um, the Gladiators Fighting Series does uh, between 10 to 14 events nationally, well, internationally, actually, uh, yeah. throughout the year. We do four here in Cleveland, um, two of them at the, uh, at the outdoor pavilion, which, uh, again, we're doing here June 10th, and then we do two indoor shows in Cleveland. And, you know, pretty much everywhere we go, uh, the Gladiators events sell out. Um, you know, it's top-level competition. Very organized and uh, well-run events, uh, professional. We treat the fans first rate. We treat the fighters first rate. And, um, you know, the fans always get their money's worth. It's, it's just a great time, and, uh, you know, we're happy to be affiliated with the promotion. So for people who are new to the sport as far as uh, your, your events go, what do you guys do everything in a ring? Is it in a cage? It's in a cage. It's in a, a six-sided cage. Um, you know, we, we do uh, UFC rules, basically. Uh, you know, elbows are allowed, knees are allowed. Um, you know, we use the four-ounce mixed martial arts gloves. It's, it's basically as, as seen on TV. And, um, you know, we're also working here in Ohio. There's uh, a company, Sports Time Ohio, which is uh, broadcasting the, the Cleveland Indians games here throughout the state. So we're talking to those guys about uh, possibly putting the Gladiators fighting series on television. But wow. Yeah, that, that's down the road. Um, yeah. For now, again, we're just uh, focusing on, on building our series. Um, and and the, the biggest difference between us and, and some of the other organizations, we take more of the grassroots approach. Um, you know, we promote uh, through our fighters, and we try to build our fighters as opposed to the organization. Yeah. And uh, we feel that's, you know, that's allowed the fans to get closer to the fighters and the, and the series and, uh, you know, has allowed us to, uh, to continue to expand. Well, Greg, for, for people who are not... Uh, who who are into fighting and and all that? What what steps do you guys do uh, to put an event together? Boy, that's uh, <laughs> that's a long process. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, people I don't think realize how much work and time and effort that goes into planning one of these shows. Um, you know, regardless of of the level, if you're if you're doing it at a ten thousand seat venue or a fifteen hundred seat venue, it's it's a lot of work. Um, but to be honest, uh, it all depends on the fighters. I think the most important part of doing a show like this is the matchmaking. Um, you know, if, if you put a product um, in the ring, and I, I don't want to call the fighters products, but you know, let's let's face it, it's you know, it's it's basically a service to the fans. That's what the fans are paying money to see. Um, you know, if you can put two fighters in there that are going to put on a good show, um, you know, it, 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 that that's really all that the fans are looking for, and that's. Easier said than done. Uh, you have to have a lot of knowledge about the sport, about the fighters that you're dealing with. And, uh, you know, we, we, we go all out as far as the venue or production level. Um, you know, we spare no, extent, no expense to, uh, you know, to make sure that everybody that's involved and that comes out to see one of our events um, is, is going to want to come back. And uh, we feel that we've accomplished that. Now, you mentioned that uh, you're hooked up with the Gladiator Fight Series and Duke Rufus. Do they have any type of 
do they provide you any type of help, or do they just stick their name on it? <laughs> uh, no, Duke is uh, actually our main ring announcer for our shows here in Cleveland. Oh. Um, he's, you know, definitely hands-on. Him and uh, Scott Doffy, who's, um, you know, another of, uh, of uh, the higher-ups with the Gladiators fighting series, uh, you know, they, they've been great. They've helped us basically from, uh, from day one as, as far as the way to go about promoting the series, um, you know, helping us. Uh, matchmake and and uh, you know they've been great. Like I said, Duke is actually present at the event. He's the main ring announcer. Um, you know he always spends time talking to the fans, signing autographs. So that's just another perk. Um, you know for people that, that do come out and see the show. Last year, UFC middleweight champion Rich Franklin uh, came out and made an appearance. Oh. Uh, George Grizel from The Ultimate Fighter. Um, we're expecting Mark Coleman and Stefan Bonner to appear this year. So. Wow. You know, it's not just what goes on in the cage. It, there's, um, you know, a festive-like atmosphere throughout the event, the venue. And, of course, the pavilion. The, the scene pavilion sits right on Lake Erie. It's an outdoor venue. Um, perfect backdrop for, uh, for a fight show. And, um, you know, just make sure you guys come out June 10th. You're not going to want to miss it. Well, I'll tell you, just, uh, just from, the, from the poster itself <laughs> to the descriptions of some of the fighters, it, it is going to be an exciting little event. And, I, yeah. and and from what you can tell, it's not really all that little. No, it's not. Um, you know, last year was again our first time in Cleveland. We had uh, a little over two thousand people attend the, the inaugural show, and really that wasn't with a lot of promotion. We kind of wanted to get our feet wet in this market and and see what the reaction would be. Um, you know, this year we're already about eighty-five uh, percent to capacity. We're expecting a sellout, five thousand people. Um, you know, just rocking that place. And uh, believe me, it, it's going to be loud. It's going to be frenzied. And um, going to be one hell of a show. Do you have to go through any athletic commissions when you set these up? or? Yes, yes. Um, we we're fortunate enough to, uh, you know, to be sanctioned by the Ohio Athletic Commercial, uh, Commission. We work hand-in-hand hand, uh, with them to assure, you know, of course, the, uh, the safety of our fighters and fans. Um, we take all precautions necessary. And, again, it, you know, it adds to the credibility of the event if um, everybody involved knows that it's a sanctioned event. And, um, you know, we, we, we really don't want to, um, you know, take any chances. Again, the yeah. sport's new. It's in its infancy stages. And, you know, um, a serious injury could be a, a, a big setback in this stage. So we definitely uh, do what we have to do to get the event sanctioned. Do you guys assign the referees or is that the athletic commissions? The athletic commission yeah. assigns the referees, the judges, timekeepers, scorekeepers. Um, they're all certified, of course, and, and they do know the sport. And um, really, Ohio is, is kind of, along with, uh, with Nevada, has kind of set the standard for, uh, for mixed martial arts. Um, Ohio is the first state to actually sanction and approve amateur mixed martial arts. And um, I know uh, me, affiliated with Pro Karate Weekly, they're also working with the North American Amateur Fight Series, which is really the first national um, organization to, uh, to try to establish the amateurs as far as mixed martial arts goes, which yeah, is, you know. there's nothing there, hardly. Yeah, that's, that's the future of the sport. I mean, right now, you know, every major sport, baseball, football, basketball, they have a minor league foundation, so to speak, where, you know, the, the, the up-and-coming talent can, can work and improve and, and kind of get a taste of, of what it's about to, uh, to step on, you know, the professional level. Oh, yeah. That's what the NAAFS is doing. Well, with uh, you being involved with Pro Karate Weekly and... Uh, everything. For people who are not familiar with the program, give us a little background on that as well. Yeah, PKW Live is um, a basically an internet radio show. We air uh, every Wednesday night on uh, sportstalkcleveland.com. 
Uh, you can also hear us pretty much anywhere on the planet if you log on to, uh, to ProKarateWeekly.com. We air live from 7 to 9 p.m. Um, we cover anything and everything that is mixed martial arts and, and kickboxing. Um, we feature live interviews every Wednesday, and, and we allow the fans to kind of interact with the fighters. Um, you know, the biggest names in the sport uh, come on to PKW and uh, preview fights. They talk about uh, training regiments, and um, it's really been a successful show. We've been on the air for about three years, and, um, That's cool. you know, we, we just, uh, you know, locked ourselves in with Sports Talk Cleveland for another couple years, and, um, you know, we're happy about uh, the whole direction that uh, this whole thing is heading. Well, with the uh, your event coming up soon, and then uh, UFC 60, what are your thoughts on Hughes Gracie? <laughs> well, we're actually going to be uh, hearing from Hoist Gracie on PKW here, hopefully this week. Oh, we wow. had Matt Hughes on last Wednesday, and um, yeah, he was very confident, uh, of course, as he should be, being uh, the welterweight champion. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I think right now. Uh, from, uh, from our listeners, the emails and the phone calls that we've gotten and the people that I've talked to, a lot of people are not giving Hoist Gracie enough of, uh, of a chance here. They seem to forget that, um, you know, he's basically the man that uh, brought the sport to the forefront. And, uh, yeah. Fashion artist in the planet, bar none. And I don't know how you can underestimate him and count him out. Matt Hughes is a great, great champion and um, has redefined uh, the welterweight division. But I look for this to be a really close fight, and um, I would not be surprised if uh, Hoist Gracie hung in there long enough to, uh, you know, to, to, to allow Hughes to make a mistake and possibly win by submission. Well, so this is what uh, John McCarthy of the Open Fighting Championship brought up last week when we talked to him, and that is that Hoist, you know, everybody's not giving him enough of a shot on this. Right. It just yeah. seems to be... Uh, a thing. I don't know if it's the fact that, because I've talked to some people at my local gym, and they're like, what? Um, they mention uh, Hughes Gracie, or I mention Hughes Gracie just in talk, and they're like, Gracie, what is he, 60? Not quite. He's definitely getting up there, but, you know, people tend to forget Hoist is not, um, you know, just he didn't go away after uh, the early UFC. Well, see, and, this and, is the thing. A lot of people that, that aren't involved with the sport don't realize he went to Pride. He went to K1. Right. Granted, some of those fights were a little strange, the, uh, <laughs> the Akibono fight and some of these others, but... Yeah, I mean, he's still, you know, he, he's, he's been tested. He hasn't been tested the, the way that Matt Hughes has, but uh, believe me, Hoist is going to be ready for this matchup. And uh, forget what the odds makers say. I, I know, um, I think BetOnFighting.com opened the, uh, the odds for this fight at, at Hughes' uh, being a three-to-one favorite, um, I, wow! I don't see it right now. If you guys are in, into the MMA gaming, um, you know, go go waste some money on Hoist, and um, you know, I think he's got a, a really good chance. I, I see this as a 50-50 fight, and um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to uh, seeing how it plays out Saturday night. Do you think it's the case? And John McCarthy wouldn't really get into this, and I can see why he wouldn't get into this because this is sort of borderlining bashing Zufa. But I find it. Strange, just from the the old, and and I kind of look at it like with uh, Vince McMahon and what he did with uh, WCW in professional wrestling. It seems like that UFC, the new UFC, Zufa has been trying to like, I don't know if you'd say kill or destroy the old guys from the <laughs> the, the, the company, but it seems like they brought in Shamrock, they got his ass beat by Tito, then they brought in Tank, and instead of putting Tank in there with 
these brawlers that people want to see and that they have on their roster, they went, oh, jujitsu guys. Yeah, I think there's a little something to that. Um, like you said, I think with the new UFC, they are trying to take a little bit away from the WWE. Um, and I think yeah. they need to as far as building you know, personas for some of the fighters and whatnot. And I also think they are trying to, to basically not necessarily cut ties with the UFC of the past, but yeah. make a statement to say, hey, the sport is, is new. This, you know, there's a new breed of fighters now. Um, you know, it, it's time that uh, that people step up and take notice. And as far as Tank and, and uh, Ken Shamrock, you know, I think the UFC didn't intend on bringing these guys in to necessarily um, go out the way that they did, especially with Ken. I think they were expecting a little bit more from him, especially with his last uh, matchup with Rich Franklin. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think anybody expected that. But that being said, I think, um, you know, it's allowing them to build the new faces of the UFC. I mean, you know, that fight with Ken Shamrock really put Rich Franklin on the map. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, and at the same time, Chuck Liddell, who's been around since, you know, arguably the earlier UFC days, not, you know, UFC 1, 2, yeah, or yeah. 3, but, you know, he, he had a presence in the early UFCs, and he's still around and a guy that they're obviously trying to build. So I think it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, they're taking a little bit from both worlds, and... Um, you know, really, it's all about the marketing right now. And I, yeah. I personally think that Dana White's doing a good job. And um, Oh, yeah, you know, I, I think he's perfect. doing a hell of a job. This is what John McCarthy was bringing out, and I've brought this out to several people, and that is they're like, oh, Dana White's this and that. And it's like, well, you know something? If Dana White and, and Zufa wouldn't have come along, they wouldn't be at UFC. There wouldn't be, you know, the whole sport would still be in the dark ages, um, especially here in the United States. I mean, love them or hate them, and... Yeah, there's a lot of hate for the guy right now, but let's face it, when you get to the top of the mountain, you know, you're going to have that. Everybody's yeah. going to try to knock you <laughs> off. And, um, you know, Dana White's, a, you know, he's uh, looking back 10 years from now, he's 10, 15 years from now, he's going to be looked at, you know, as, as a pioneer, as, as a man that really brought the sport to, you know, to the to the place where it's going to be and, and where we're definitely heading. Um, you know, I don't think anybody can argue that, um, you know, it's the fastest-growing sport in the world right oh, yeah. now. And uh, in this country, in my opinion, within two or three years, it's going to overtake professional wrestling in popularity. Yeah, yeah. And and, and it already has with uh, some of the – well, and like with Vince, he's, he's really running scared because he's made a lot of uh, gimmicks just recently that are right. based off, you know, NHB, UFC guys, so – yeah, there's no doubt. Vince is uh, is feeling the heat, and um, you know I have some connections to uh, to some guys that, that cover professional wrestling, and they're definitely, uh, you know, Vince is worried about uh, the mixed martial arts yeah. as he should be. Um, yeah. You know, and now that that we're starting to see again, the UFC building personalities a little bit. Um, you know, I, I think the fans have, uh, you know, are going to be crossing over by the hordes, and and I can understand why. It's a great sport, and um, you know, there is nothing more exciting and more pure than uh, than mixed martial arts. Do you think that uh, Zufa and the UFC should go back to the dramatic entrances that they had at one time, or do you think they should just keep it like they've got it where it looks like professional boxing? Um, You know what? I, I, I kind of miss the dramatic entrances a little bit. And it's, it, I think they should take a page from Pride's book when it comes to uh, oh, yes. the ring entrances. <laughs> I, you know, anybody that's watched the Pride pay-per-view, um, you know, that's half the show is, is the guys making the, the walk to the ring, and you can really feel the energy in the crowd. I do like, you know, the way that the UFC stepped in and, and took care of, uh, 
you know, a lot of the post-fight speech and hype. Yeah. And that was unnecessary, but, you know, the walk to the ring... My 30 billion sponsors! <laughs> uh, you know, the walk to the ring is, is a build-up. I, I really would like to see, you know, a little bit more showmanship. Um, you know, but in the end, it's all about what goes down in the cage, you know, between the ropes, any way you want to look at it. It's about, yeah. you know, the fighters themselves and uh, their ability to bang. And, um, you know... The crop of fighters that are coming up here in the next four to five, even ten years, it's really going to be scary. Well, you guys cover on Pro Karate Weekly more than just UFC. You cover kickboxing. And what what are your thoughts, <coughs> excuse me, on, like, K-1? Well, I'm a huge K-1 guy, um, you know, and I, I love kickboxing. I love K-1, honestly. Um, right now it's just a bad situation for them. Um, you know, yeah. that's coming off the most entertaining tournament that the K-1 has ever done here in the States just a couple weeks ago in Las Vegas. But right now, everybody's talking mixed martial arts, and um, you're starting to slowly see K-1, uh, you know, dip their feet into the mixed martial arts pool as well. Yes. They're starting to, you know, slowly promote uh, mixed martial arts events with Heroes and, and now Strike Force on the West Coast. Um, you know, but being with PKW, we get a chance to cover a lot of, uh, a lot of the smaller you know, regional events, and, and we really get yeah. a chance to see some of the fighters that are on, you know, the second or third tiers that are close to breaking through, and that's why I can say the talent pool is, is just unbelievable out there, and I think, um, you know, the fighters that we're going to start to see break through in the next few years, it, it's just going to be uh, even that much more exciting for everybody. Well, with the uh, K-1 event, whenever I talk to people about K-1 and they and they talk about the K-1 USA events and everything, the one name that always gets brought up is Michael McDonald. Why yeah. is this guy never able to break through? He's never been able... He, he wins the USA stuff. <laughs> hell, hell, a couple of years ago, they had a tournament from what, you know, you could... I, I don't know if, if you guys had that opinion of this, but it seemed like they held a tournament just so he could be in it. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, I've heard that before. A lot of people seem to think that, uh, you know, especially over the past few years, that, you know, K-1 was kind of catering towards Michael McDonald and Carter Williams and, and yeah. you know, the two North American stars, uh, you know, potentially that had the hope of bringing the title here. But, you know, with Michael McDonald, I, you know, I, I just think it's a case of, you know, on the world stage, he's, he's a little bit overrated. And I love him. Yeah. I think he's a hell of a fighter. You know, but fighting guys here in the States and in Canada, it's, it's a totally different ballgame when you fight guys from Holland and, um, oh, yeah. you know, and even Japan. <laughs> I mean, you know, the talent pool overseas is, is just head and shoulders above what it is here in North America. Um, and I think you see that once he does make it to the Tokyo Dome, regardless of who he's matched up with. And I think he's had a little bit of bad luck, too, along the way. But, um, yeah. you know, the Ray Seffos, the Remy Bonjanskis of this world, I think are just a little bit on a higher level than uh, than a fighter like Michael McDonald. Yeah. But very entertaining, and um, like I said, I love the guy, and, uh, you know, the Black Sniper has certainly made for uh, some great K-1 memories. Well, I've always wondered, he goes from, he wins the USA event, and then I never see him at the, the Tokyo show. Does he lose somewhere along the way? Or? <laughs> yeah, there's another step in between. He drops it. out. <laughs> Well, he's had, again, he's had some bad luck with injuries, too, that have yeah. actually caused him uh, in the past to withdraw. But, you know, once you win a K-1 USA tournament here, it's, you know, you're not automatically seated to fight in Tokyo for the finals. There's one okay. more step, um, you know, and, and on occasion he's, he's, 
you know, kind of fallen off at, at that second step. But, uh, again, it's, it should take nothing away from what he's accomplished. I mean, the guy's won, you know, 60-some-odd fights. He has oh, yeah. against the best in the world. I mean, he's beaten Mirko Krokop, which is an accomplishment yes. in itself. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, is, that is quite a name when you think about the the guys that he's beaten and that, that one name pops up there. Yeah. yeah. To be on, go, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, to be honest, to me, a bigger disappointment has, has been Carter Williams. Um, you know, here's a guy that they came out his first year, broke through, winning the K-1 Vegas tournament, beat Michael McDonald, yeah. beat Rick Rufus, the legendary yeah. Rick Rufus in the finals, and really has never been able to live up to the expectations. Um, you know, there's a fighter with all the talent in the world, but, um, you know, to really break through, whether it's mixed martial arts or kickboxing, you get to the point where a lot of the fighters are really on the same level as far as talent. It's what separates, you know, the A-level fighters from the B-level fighters. It's what's between yeah. the ears. And I hate to say it, but I think Carter's biggest, uh, you know, fallback was his mental focus. And I, I just don't think he had enough upstairs to uh, to allow him to really take that next step. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, he's a, he's a great guy, great up-and-comer, and I, I wish he'd get it together. <laughs> He's running out of time. I don't even know if you can call him an up-and-comer anymore. Well, see, that's the thing. Uh, you look at some of the, uh, we mentioned Pride earlier. What What do you guys, I, I always ask this to every MMA guy that I ever talk to. What do you guys think of Bob Sapp? Is <laughs> <laughs> this just the greatest story ever or what? <laughs> Man, I, I could probably spend three or four hours talking just about Bob Sapp. But, um, I, you know, Bob Sapp is one of those guys you got to give him credit. Um, you know, he, he took advantage of what was given to him. He was, I guess, at the right place at the wrong at the right time. Yeah. And, um, you know, he's benefited, benefited from it. But, you know, to compare Bob Sapp, you know, to, to uh, Fedor or, you know, or <laughs> any of these guys yeah. um, is, is, is really a joke. And especially now, I mean, Bob Sapp, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but he pulled out of... Uh, yeah, there's a rumor he's going to Pride. Well, he's been in Pride. Uh, oh. you know, he's fought in Pride before, yeah. and he actually was supposed to fight last weekend in, uh, in Holland against Ernesto Hoost and um, was actually in the building and pulled out of the fight. Apparently, he wasn't happy with uh, some of... Uh, you know, some things that weren't in his locker room or whatever, and he just, you know, up and left uh, left the building about two hours before the fight. So right now he's looking at possibly a, a lifetime ban from K-1. And, um, you know, I don't know if, if uh, Pride is looking at picking him up. You know, this it's, it's just a bad situation that he yeah. put himself in. So, you know, I think we potentially could have heard the end of, uh, of Bob Sapp. Well, there's been a, a rumor floating around for the, the past several months with, the fact that Brock Lesnar recently settled his his lawsuit with Vince that Japan is trying to put together as awkward as it seems <laughs> a Bob Sapp Brock Lesnar fight. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Why would anyone pay to see this? Well, you know what? In Japan, they would. They absolutely would. Um, and I would hesitate to say they would probably pay to see that here in the states. Well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> as big a name as Brock Lesnar is, let's face it. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm really not a fan of, of, and we call those circus fights on, on PKW when they're brought up, because <laughs> um, that's basically all they're oh, yeah. Granted, Lesnar, you know, I'm sure is a great athlete, and it was a great professional wrestling, and who knows, he might be a 
you know, a good fighter. But um, well, see, they they've had some things in the past where uh, I remember back in the day they showed a they were doing a highlight clip and they were promoting this fight between The Rock and Brock Lesnar, and they were showing The Rock, you know, sprinting and training, and they were showing Brock hit a heavy bag, and he just wasn't connecting with decent shots, and I thought, oh my god, what is this? And then when, then when there was rumors coming up, oh, Brock wants to do MMA, I'm like, okay, he, he's a great athlete, he's a former NCAA wrestling champion, but He's going to have to know a little bit more than wrestling to get the job done. Yeah, I mean, you would think they learned from the Sean O'Hare experiment. Maybe that's not the way to go, but again, I mean, you never know. It, it, Daniel Peter, who I'm, I'm sure uh, wrestling fans are familiar yeah. with, and um, who happens to be a friend of mine, yeah, that's a different situation. I really believe that um, Daniel Pewter could be successful in professional wrestling as well as mixed martial arts. Oh, yeah. He's come up with a mixed martial arts background. He knows jiu-jitsu. Um, it's easier for him as opposed to somebody that's coming in with, you know, just wrestling or even yeah. a box. I mean, there's been a lot of boxers that have tried to cross over and do kickboxing oh, and yeah. mixed martial arts. It's just a very difficult transition. But at the same time, for K1, it's a brilliant business move. You know, you're going to be tapping into millions and millions of fans that are going to want to watch this just for the fact that Brock Lesnar is <laughs> participating. So, you know, obviously it's a move that if they can make, they have to make. Um, yeah. It's it's just a, a, a really strange move. move. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I, you, you bring up uh, Daniel Pewter. I would I would have loved to see him do more in professional wrestling. I There's a lot of people that share the belief that when he had the opportunity, he should have broke Kurt Angle's <laughs> ankle. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we talked to Daniel about that. And looking back, he, you know, I think he wishes that he would have. Um, and I think the WWE dropped the ball on, on Daniel. Um, obviously, he was a popular figure. I mean, you know, look at all the votes he, he had done just to win the uh, Tough Enough contest. And, you know, he's got the persona. He's got the mixed martial arts, the potential UFC twist that they could have built on. Um you know, so I don't know what happened. You know, there was a lot of stuff behind the scenes um, you know, that we're not privy to, but uh, I agree with you. I think Daniel would have been a perfect fit, and timing-wise, you know, the, the WWE just blew it. Now, hopefully, yeah. um, looks like Strikeforce is going to be capitalizing off of it. I would have liked to see him possibly in the Ultimate Fighter house, but I don't know. That would be really way too much. I, I know a lot of those guys that have been on there have got a little bit of MMA experience that Pewter would have just... I think blew them all away. <laughs> yeah, Daniel would have been a good fit. Um, I, I think, um, you know, with his ability and, again, his personality makes for great television. I think he would have been uh, a good fit to the Ultimate Fighter household. But uh, and, and I know for a fact that they were actually talking to him about uh, possibly being on the cast of Season 2 at the time. Wow. But uh, for whatever reason, it didn't work out. And, um, you know, I don't think Daniel's going to complain. I think he's in a good position right now. Strike Force, you know, they oh, yeah. 18,000 fans to their last show. Um, and I think really, you know, going back to Scott Coker, he's smart when it comes to being able to, you know, to, to build a star. And I think he's got one in Daniel Pewter, and we'll see what he does with him. That's great. I've enjoyed the conversation. We ran out of time. I will uh, get you an email this evening, let you know when it's going to air and everything. And uh, All right. good luck with the event. Keep us updated on everything. 
I uh, certainly appreciate it, and um, yeah, we, uh, we we appreciate the exposure, and um, any fans that are interested and want to check out the fight card, listen to PKW Live, you can go to ProKarateWeekly.com and uh, get all your information online. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.